good to be here. Uh, it is spring break, so there are people who are breaking, but it is good for us to be here and to be online. Uh, glad you're here. I'm Steve, and I'm the senior pastor here. Now, let me back up. There we go. Um, we all know what it is for something to be spoiled, right? Right? I mean, it, it has a certain smell to it. There's hairy mold growing on it. The expiration date has come and gone. Uh, but did you know that there's an entire wing of the government that has dedicated their existence to defining it to a scientific precision called the Food and Drug Administration? And really, uh, they have a scientific precision for what is spoiled and what is not, which incidentally enough may not be to the levels that we had hoped. Um, here are some guidelines for some familiar products that maybe you have even eaten this morning. Um, berries, like raspberries, blueberries, do you like those kinds of things? If the mold count is 60% or more, if there's an average of more than four insect larvae per 500 grams, or an average of 10 or more whole insects, that's right. And of course, this excludes thrips, aphids, and mites, the FDA will pull it from the shelves. Otherwise, it has gone into your yogurt and your smoothie. Isn't that nice to know? Chocolate. I already hear some groans here, right? If there's an average of 60 or more insect fragments per 100 grams of six samples, or there's 90 or more insect fragments in any one of those samples, or if there are three or more rodent hairs in any sample taken, chocolate will be pulled from the market. I guess the FDA wants our chocolate to be a little bit buggy, a little bit hairy, but a little bit too much is too much protein for us all, I guess. Okay. Uh, citrus fruit juices. Anybody have an orange juice this morning? Okay. Um, if the average mold count is 10% or more, if there are five or more fruit flies or other fly eggs... Or one maggot per 250 milligrams, the FDA ruthlessly eliminates it from Minute Maid's uh, entourage of lemonade and orange juice, right? Macaroni and noodles, right? If you have an average of 225 insect fragments or more per 20, 225 grams or six or more samples, if there's an average of more than 4.5 rodent hairs, I don't know how they get the 5.5 in there, but they do. Kraft will not sell you that macaroni and cheese to you and your kids. Okay, hot dogs. You don't even want to know about it. Okay, um, but good food turns into bad food when it is spoiled. But this is not just true of the food that we drinks, the food that we eat, and the drinks that we love. It's also true of life. Life goes from good to bad when it is spoiled by folly. The preacher of Ecclesiastes puts this principle like this. He says, dead flies make the perfumer's ointment give off a stench. So a little folly outweighs wisdom and honor. Just as dead flies in a perfume spoils it with a stench of death, so also folly can spoil a life of wisdom and honor. And we know this, don't we? Because we can all think of people whom we have admired, whom we have considered great, whom we have looked up to, 
to, and yet they live with a cloud of shame now with a life that has been spoiled with folly. Bill Hybels, Elizabeth Holmes, Mark Driscoll, Bill Cosby, Jimmy and Tammy Faye Baker, Harvey Weinstein, Ravi Zacharias. And there are figures in the Bible too. Adam and Eve need no explanation. Right? Gideon, who led one of the greatest military upsets only to leave memorials to his greatness that would entangle later generations in idolatry. Rebecca, who is one of the great matriarchs, and yet she has become synonymous with manipulation and deception to get her way. And Solomon, the wisest of all men, whose great legacy was building the temple, but ironically, he also littered the Israelite landscape with idolatrous sites that planted the seeds for civil war to come so that Israel would then become Israel in the north and Judah in the south. Folly spoils a life, even one that has been filled with wisdom and with honor, which is incredibly sobering to realize, isn't it? And even scares me for how susceptible I am to folly. So you see, the preacher, he, he's sharing this with us to help us to learn how to live. And in particular, he wants us to grasp the spoilage of folly, uh, how to navigate that spoilage of folly in other people that we run into, and as well to appreciate how spoil actually follows our own, foils our own life. So, like Bronwyn said, why don't you take your Bible out? I want you to take you, go to this section of Ecclesiastes, in Ecclesiastes chapter 10, verses 1 to 20. The preacher's going to appreciate, help us to appreciate the spoilage of folly, even in the wisest of lives. If you grab one of those blue Bibles and you use page 558. And let's give our attention to this section and, and listen really carefully as our college director, Maddie Peterson, comes up and reads it aloud. Ecclesiastes 10, 1 through 20. Dead flies make the perfumer's ointment give off a stench, so a little folly outweighs wisdom and honor. A wise man's heart inclines him to the right, but a fool's heart to the left. Even when the fool walks on the road, he lacks sense, and he says to everyone that he is a fool. If the anger of the ruler rises against you, do not leave your place, for calmness will lay great offenses to rest. There is an evil that I have seen under the sun, as it were an error proceeding from the ruler. Folly is set in many high places, and the rich sit in low place. I have seen slaves on horses and princes walking on the ground like slaves. He who digs a pit will fall into it, and a serpent will bite him who breaks through a wall. 
He who quarries stones is hurt by them, and he who splits logs is endangered by them. If the iron is blunt and one does not sharpen the edge, he must use more strength. But wisdom helps one to succeed. If the serpent bites before it is charmed, there is no advantage to the charmer. The words of a wise man's mouth win him favor, but the lips of a fool consume him. The beginning of the words of his mouth is foolishness, and the end of his talk is evil madness. A fool multiplies words, though no man knows what is to be, and who can tell him what will be after him? The toil of a fool wearies him, for he does not know the way to the city. Woe to you, O land, when your king is a child and your princes feast in the morning. Happy are you, O land, when your king is a son of the nobility and your princes feast at the proper time for strength and not for drunkenness. Through sloth, the roof sinks in and through indolence, the house leaks. Bread is made for laughter, and wine gladdens life, and money answers everything. Even in your thoughts, do not curse the king, nor in your bedroom curse the rich, for a bird of the air will carry your voice, or some winged creature tell the matter. This is the word of the Lord. Now, keep your Bible out. Maybe it's a little bit confusing because we want to appreciate here the details and, and actually his flow of argument of what he's going to go through when it comes to how folly spoils a life. Now, to begin with, what the preacher does is he defines folly for us. He does it in general terms, but enough to get a sense of like what the kind of folly he's talking about, the kind that he has in mind that spoils a life when he says this in verse 2. He says, a wise man's heart inclines him to the right, but a fool's heart to the left. Now, putting it like this, the preacher's making it clear that he's not, the folly he's talking about isn't the kind of a matter of intelligence here. That's not what he's talking about. It's not about how smart or stupid someone may be, because he locates the difference of wisdom and folly as being in the heart. This variety of wisdom or folly is a matter of the heart. In the preacher's mind, uh, our heart acts like the CPU of our life, and it is programmed with wisdom or folly, which then guides and directs life. And so this is something emanating from the very center of our being, our mind, our will, our emotions, that then directs the course of our decisions and the course of our lives. And the preacher also reminds us here of the difference that is stark in the guidance given. Wisdom, it says, points to the fool, the fool goes to the left. And it's not just a matter of opposite directions there. It's also a matter of contrasting results that he's driving at. In the preacher's day, the right carried connotations of being connected with strength enough to save or, or support or protect. 
Whereas the connotations with the left were connected to disfavor, uh, fumbling, incompetence. It's why we see in the Bible, we see fathers bless their favorite child with their right hand because it's kind of like extra strength blessing or something, and their less favorite child with their left hand for lesser. And so wisdom, inclining to the right, means it it tends towards strength. Uh, It tends towards power and favor with God. But folly inclines to the left, towards frailty, towards fumbling and, and disfavor with God. You think you got the concept? Let, let's try. Let's try. Let's give a case study here, just to see if we know what we're talking about. Um, in, in Yellowstone National Park, there's an area called the Shoshone Geyser Basin, and there are some very picturesque uh, springs there that look like this. They're incredibly picturesque. But don't let that beauty fool you, because you know, thinking that it's a great time for a hot tub or you know something like that, because the temperatures in there reach like 400 degrees Fahrenheit. Right? People have been severely burned and even died from burns in, from those springs. And so Yellowstone has all kinds of laws. They have posted all kinds of signs to stay on the trails and to stay away from the hot springs to protect the beauty, but also to protect the people from themselves. And so with that in mind, here's what happened. Just over a year ago, three friends were caught trying to cook a chicken in one of those. They read the signs, they saw the signs, but they reasoned that the signs meant that they shouldn't be destructive, not that they should stay away from them. And in their estimation, they, were being, they weren't being destructive because they had double-bagged the bird to cook it in the hot springs. And so park rangers caught them, right? And in the eyes of Yellowstone and park rangers, do you think these friends were inclining to the right or the left, towards, you know, wisdom or towards folly? Go ahead. What do you think? Yeah, pretty much folly. So much so, these three friends were fined, they were given probation, and they have been banned from the park, right? But that's folly. And it began internally with how seriously they take the signs and the laws around them, which led them to go to the left to try to cook their chicken in those springs. And in the same vein, the preacher tells us, albeit more seriously with God, folly is a matter of the heart, shrugging its shoulders at God. It's a disposition of the heart of not taking God into account or not taking God really that seriously to follow his ways in that area that we want to do what we want to do. Folly is a matter of the heart. And it's as plain as day to everyone else who can spy it, just like we can with those friends at at the Yellowstone National Park. Preacher says it's as plain as day. You can see it coming from a million miles away. Even when the fool walks on the road, he lacks sense, and he says to everyone that he is a fool. So even if we can't exactly see the heart, right, Understand what's going on in someone's heart. All of us know when we see it in a person. The pattern of decisions they make. The pattern of how they treat people. Spend their time and money. How they conduct their lives. We see it because we see the quality in life. It looks like they're just shrugging their shoulders at God. 
That's the folly the preacher is pointing out to us that, that spoils a life. It's a matter of the heart. One that would shrug its shoulders at God because that just always leaks out into the kind of life that is led. So the question becomes, how do we manage this when we see this in others? Right? When we see this kind of spoilage of someone shrugging their shoulders at God in life, what do we do? Right? Here's what the preacher says in verse 4. This is his guidance. He says, if the anger of a ruler rises against you, do not leave your place, for calmness will lay great offenses to rest. This is the worst place possible to encounter folly in a ruler or a king. A king is the final human power and, and perfect freedom to run over people, destroy their family, throw them in jail, and take their life. I mean, they have more power, more freedom than the worst boss you've ever had. Than the crazed teacher or professor that terrorizes you in a class. More than any governing official that we've encountered in a democratic system like our own. And so folly, in the, and so anger, you know, coming in the form of folly there from a king is incredibly dangerous, which is why it's absolutely paramount to know how to deal with that spoil. Don't you agree? Right? And the preacher, the preacher directs us. He says this. He says, do not leave your place. That is, don't do what your adrenaline is screaming for you to do. Don't fight. Don't flight. Stay there. Stay there. He's saying, don't fight. Don't go to toe in folly in that anger from the king. Don't elevate your voice. Don't try to make your case. Don't try to get them to try to understand all in an effort so that they'll agree with you. The insinuation is that it's a recipe for disaster. Because part of the folly is that you can't change their mind. It's a matter of the heart where only God can operate. The preacher is also saying, don't take flight. Don't panic and metaphorically hide. Nor should you run and literally hide. Don't hide behind excuses. Don't duck behind someone nearby. Don't conceal the truth. Don't point fingers at other people all in an effort to get the, out of the line of fire. The insinuation being that it's a recipe for a disaster because part of folly is that you can't dodge it in others. It arouses greater suspicion when you do that. Unintentionally puts a bigger target on your back. Instead of fight, instead of flight, the preacher tells us calmness. Calmness is the cure to bring the temperature down. It's not about changing the mind or getting out of the line of fire. It's about, you know, it's about bringing the immediate irritation down to give God the space to operate in their heart with truth. Affirm what you can affirm with what, is tr with what truth is present. Not more than you can to, to win them over because that betrays the truth. Being operative in their heart with God there. You know, own what you should own based on the truth. Not more than what is yours because that also betrays the truth that God can use in their heart to change them. Speak with calmness. 
Speak with kindness without raising your voice to be heard or whispering to avoid uncomfortable truths because that's the environment that God uses to germinate something else in their heart to replace that folly. Calmness is the order of the day, the preacher says, in dealing with folly. And the rationale for doing this is that, you know, when the stakes are sky high in dealing with folly, like in a ruler, if that's how it's handled there, then it also works for all kinds of folly in others who are all around us, aren't they? There is an evil that I have seen under the sun, as it were an error proceeding from the ruler. Folly is set in many high places, and the rich sit in a low place. I have seen slaves on horses and princes walking on the ground like slaves. See, what he's saying is that folly is littered everywhere. (laughs) From the expected to the unexpected, from kings to paupers, scholars to ditch diggers, foreign dignitaries to neighbors. And so we're going to encounter folly and calmness is the order of the day for how to deal with it. When I was studying this, I couldn't help but think of uh, a story involving Sir Edmund Hillary, the first man to reach the peak. I don't know what it's about Sir Edmund Hillary. I'm kind of intrigued by the guy, okay? Um, but on one of his return trips to Everest, a group of tourists stopped him, and they, and they begged him to take a photo with them. You know, and being the sort of guy he is, he's a very generous guy with his time, and he obliged, and, and they quickly handed him a, an, an ice pick, you know, an ice, you know, that they would use on these hikes and things like that um, to, as part of the picture to make it look like they were realistically like hiking with him, right? Um, and just then, another climber was walking by and he didn't recognize Sir Edmund Hillary. And he strode right up to Sir Edmund Hillary. And he said, excuse me, that's not how you hold an ice pick. Let me help you here. And then the climber adjusted it in Sir Edmund Hillary's hand. And walked. How foolish is that, right? And so Sir Edmund Hillary, he's got a couple of options of how to deal with this guy, right? I mean, he could have fought back and smacked the guy down and said, you know, you idiot. I like summited Everest when you were in diapers. Back off, right? He could have done that, smacked him down, right? Or he could have just, you know, saved face and said, you know, you know, this is the guy who handed to me. I just grabbed it, you know, just pass off the blame. And Sir Edmund Hillary didn't either. He just chose calmness. He let the guy adjust the ice axe, and he said, thank you, and went on with the picture. Everyone else was in stud silence. You see, folly is a matter of the heart, shrugging its shoulders at God, and we use calmness to deal with it. Hard to remember, though, isn't it? Because we all have people that we're dealing with that have folly running in them, don't we? Uh, Who are you dealing with? Um, From that someone who's in power over you? Or that someone who reports to you? A colleague of yours? A fellow student? A roommate? A neighbor, a friend. Listen to what the preacher said. Affirm what you can affirm. Own what you should own with them. 
and do all that you can to have a calm presence and kind words. Think through salient thoughts and points. Process with someone wiser for what boundaries you can have. Take a really deep breath before you speak with them. Do all of that. But calmness is the order of the day when we encounter folly. And here's the thing. Usually folly is much easier to spot in others than it is in ourselves, right? And that's partly why the preacher spends the lion's share of the real estate here in chapter 10, unpacking our folly in life so that you and I, we would appreciate how it spoils our life. And listen, listen, listen. So that we never, ever end up thinking that we'll never have folly, that it will never, ever enter into our lives. We'll never do that. The primary way that the preacher envisions how folly spoils our life is this. It recoils on us. Here's how he frames it in verse 8. He says this. He says, He who digs a pit will fall into it, and a serpent will bite him who breaks through a wall. He who quarries stones is hurt by them, and he who splits logs is endangered by them. If the iron is blunt and one does not sharpen the edge, he must use more strength, but wisdom helps one to succeed. If the serpent bites before it is charmed, there is no advantage to the charmer. Now, at first, this just looks like a random list of accidents, right? But it's anything more than that. It's it's much more than that. Look more carefully. To begin with, there are destructive activities in digging a pit and breaking through a wall that we're cued into. That they're foolish because it's destructive in and of itself. Because of that destructive intent. And the destructive activity, he says, recoils because destruction often comes back boomeranging at us unintentionally even. And then, we're cued in with more like constructive activities and quarrying stones and splitting logs. And we're cued in that they're a matter of folly and with them because of preparation. To sharpen the tool, he says, is wise because it means less effort to cut the stone for the wood to be chopped. But to use the tool without sharpening it is foolish because it means greater strength, greater effort required to cut that stuff. And with dull instruments, even shrapnel comes shooting back at us. It's a folly of non-preparation. Recoils in more work being done and even injury coming. And then lastly, there are just dangerous activities like charming a snake, right? They get hazard pay. Right? And we're clued in, and it's a matter of wisdom and folly when it comes to timing. Even the expert snake charmer is snake bitten if they're foolish enough not to get the timing right and charming the snake before the snake comes out of the basket. So, this whole section, the preacher is telling us that folly recoils on us. Now, it's not that every point of folly recoils on us. Granted, one folly in sky-high stakes has the potential for instantly recoiling on us, like, you know, punching a senator or a bouncer, right? 
You know, insulting your boss or professor before on the first day that you meet them. That might do it. You know, letting all your money ride on that magic, on your favorite number on the roulette wheel, right? That's, that's one of those cases. But that's not how it normally works. That's not how the preacher is envisioning it here. It's as if we practice falling in one area that we are like pulling back a rubber band. And we just keep pulling back. Further and further until we get into those high sky stakes that are high enough that we break the rubber band or it snaps for us. And no, I'm not going to snap it because I'm not a fool. Right? I'll let this genius do it for me. Did you see that again? Here we go. There we go. You won't forget that part of this message, will you? More often, what happens is that practicing folly, it builds up to shape us to be a kind of person and to set a certain kind of tone in our relationships for folly to then recoil on us. And the preacher envisions it in a number of areas that it actually does it. In verses 12 to 20, he unpacks a bunch of different areas. He says, you know, it happens with our words. It says, the words of a wise man's mouth with him win him favor, but the lips of a fool consume him. The irony of the, is that the fools of the lips don't just speak or eat, they actually cannibalize them. Their words, their tone devour their reputation, their character, their relationships, their impact for good, the person themselves. And we know this, don't we? Because we have that saying, you know, sticking your foot in your mouth, putting your foot in your mouth. Have you ever done that? Of course you have. Of course you have. We've all done it. And we've tasted what the preacher is talking about right here. We've said that thing that embarrasses us. It embarrasses utter. It's tactless. Hurts them. Hurts us. And that just ends up being the tip of the iceberg, so to speak. For how foolish words end up recoiling on us if we just keep practicing that kind of speech. And this preacher talks about that. He echoes this in verses 13 and 14 and 20. The preacher also envisions how it happens in leadership and those areas of influence we do have. He says, Woe to you, O land, when your king is a child and your princes feast in the morning. A land is ruled by folly and the immaturity of a child is in deep trouble, which does not refer to age as much as it does to um, uh, wisdom and maturity levels. Because this kind of immaturity means feasting will happen in the morning. Who feasts in the morning? Only those who misuse their privileges that they've been given. And we know this too, don't we? We see how privileges have been misused by those in power, primarily politicians, which the opposing parties like to point out to everyone, right? Use of violence and laws and manipulation for personal interests. But if we can appreciate that in politicians, don't you think it might happen to us in the privileges that we've been given, the freedoms that we have with our position? with how we use our money, how accountable we are for our time, our power, our self-interest. The dynamic of folly recoiling also happens with our efforts. 
Though those sloth, through sloth, the roof sinks in, and through indolence, the house leaks. The folly of laziness here is pictured as just simple neglect. And that folly recoils on itself when a roof is left to its own, it will surely sink in. A house left to normal wear and tear, it will certainly leak. And we know this too, right? Because look at our own houses. When's the last time you cleaned your gutters? Every time I mention that in a sermon, everyone goes home and cleans their gutters. Why? Because we know, neglect that over the years and water will surely make its way into the house. Or how I recently have you weeded your garden or yard? If neglect goes on too long, it's going to be taken over by those dandelions and clovers. Just look at my backyard, right? And that's the tip of the iceberg. How the falliness of neglect catches up with us. It recoils on us, not just on the houses that we have, but also on our life, on our friendships, our marriages, our faith, our family. And the preacher just keeps reiterating this in verses 15 and 19. You see, the preacher's telling us, he's telling us the folly recoils on us in a variety of ways from our words, to our influence, to our effort. And it spoils our life like dead flies in a perfume, the kind of stuff that the FDA would kick us out for. Are you depressed yet? See, this whole chapter, it's supposed to be a warning for us that folly matters in your life and in my life. Yes, forgiveness from God it can be had through Jesus, but that doesn't spare us from the natural consequences of shrugging our shoulders at God because it eventually recoils in our life and often comes snapping back like that rubber band on the face. So listen, 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 listen. Keep those dead flies out. And here's how with a ruthless honesty about yourself. Because we all have hearts that like to shrug its shoulders at God, don't we? So we take those shrugging shoulder hearts, we take them to Jesus. We let it look at Jesus on the cross and see how God did not shrug his shoulders at us but sent his son to die for us on the cross, to open our hearts, to break our hearts with his love for us so that we would be in a relationship with him with forgiveness and freedom and adoption as his child. And from that position, that posture, we can then face ourselves with a very healthy suspicion without giving ourselves the benefit of the doubt to the point that we can trust godly, wise people to give us feedback. We're so safe with God, we might even ask them, if you were me, what would you do differently? Got that rhyme? And from that posture of safety with God, we can be ruthlessly honest about our emotional angst, our fear, and our anger, and what's actually driving that in there. And not just how others have done us wrong we'll be able to face that what folly might be at work there and that is recoiling against us with, when it comes to with a counselor maybe or a friend or a small group. 
And then lastly, from that posture, we can be ruthlessly honest about how desperately we need wisdom. No matter our age, no matter our experience. Seeing that means we will have a teachable spirit to receive learnings from others and learn from anybody. To be formed by the scripture in our heart. To to listen to that spirit's still small voice guiding us in wisdom, even when it contradicts what we think we need to do. Dead flies make the perfumer's ointment give off a stench. So a little folly outweighs wisdom and honor. Hear the preacher. Folly spoils a life with its heart, shrugging its shoulders at God. When you see that others, you know, use calmness without fighting or flighting to give God the space to operate in their heart to change them. And realize that that spoilage, those seeds of spoilage are in us as well. And so seek wisdom that it takes for God to take God seriously in every area of our life. From our sexuality to our finances. From marriage and parenting to friendships. From conflict management to life decisions and direction. From our work ethic to what we watch on Netflix. Because that avoids the recoil of folly in our life. Let's pray to that end, shall we? God, so often we think and we believe that that we'll never do that. We'll never go that way. That will never happen to us. And God, in so many ways, I give myself too much credit. And so, Lord, I thank you for these sobering thoughts from the preacher, and I ask God for all of us that we would desperately seek wisdom from you Wisdom that comes from one another. Wisdom that comes in your scriptures. Wisdom that comes in listening and following your spirit. God, would you do that? Because we do not want to spoil this one and only life you've given us. But rather, we pray that the the perfume would be the aroma of Jesus to our families, to our friends, to our neighbors, and to our world. We pray that you would do this for your glory and for our ongoing joy. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.